Well, I've certainly enjoyed um, spending the last two or three days with the children of God. I mean, truly, I hope that's one of the reasons why we enjoy church camp so much is because we're refreshed in our faith. We're rejuvenated and we find we find a refreshment and fellowship together in the things of God. And I, I certainly certainly have been blessed to be here, to be in your company and to um, have iron sharpened iron and uh, it's been a blessing to be here um, <coughs> enjoying the things, the mutual the mutual benefits that are ours in the Lord. Um, church camp to me in many ways kind of marks the passing of time. You know, we've been doing this for I don't know, almost 15 years probably. And uh, to me, it's, it's, they're mile markers, as I've said in the past here. Uh, and and uh, I think we, we do well to, um, to reflect what our life is like, what our hopes are in, what our, what our future might hold. And, and, in light of some of these truths, um, I want to preach to you today out of Second Peter one, and part of this passage definitely shows us that these Second Peter they represent Peter's last words and to the church as an apostle. Second Peter represent the last words of Peter to the church. And if you would have had an opportunity to have someone stand here today instead of myself, let's say uh, some great man of God who, who we respect, like, I don't know, maybe, maybe somebody like John MacArthur, if he would have graced our church camp, uh, that would really mean something to us, wouldn't it? We would make sure we were here. And um, but he, but but we have a greater one here than MacArthur here. <laughs> you know, we have the Apostle Peter giving his last words to the church, and we'll see in the last portion, in the last part of the message. I want to address that part where Peter's sense of urgency in sharing this. But um, if you would open your Bible to Second Peter. And uh, we're just reminded of some great and awesome truths in this passage. And so, uh, let me read the text, 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 1 through verse 15. It's a lengthy reading. And I think if, if, you, if you're starting to... Get to know me, you know that I like to preach out of longer texts. I like bigger chunks simply because I get a better scope. I get a larger scope for my, uh, the parameters are broader and the, the panorama is greater 
And we begin to see more clearly from a greater text. And, and while you are not able to plumb the depth then of that text, hopefully the scope is there. And so that's, uh, that's what I, I think that's, that is developing uh, as a bit of my style, I think. So reading in 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, as His divine power has given us has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. But also for this very reason, giving all diligence to add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble." For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. For this reason, I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things. Though you know and are established in the present truth, yes, I think it is right, as long as I am in this tent, to stir you up by reminding you knowing that shortly I must put off my tent, just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. Moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease. What a passage of Scripture. What a glorious portion of God's Word. So today, I want to just, in my feeble attempts, I hope that this passage will in some ways come alive to you. And it maybe already is. It may be alive to you. Praise God if it is. But I, I trust that we can look at this and going along with the theme of our church camp is the promises of God. And when Brother Chris told me about that, and of course I was already considering what I would preach here, 
my mind went to first when second Peter one, the exceeding great and precious promises of God. And I've enjoyed the emphasis here already in the past, like in the last couple of evenings of young men sharing, you know, the the emphasis on the promise of God. We've been singing the the. Um, the song, Standing on the Promises of God. And this morning, my title would be Christ, the Land of Promise. Christ, the Land of Promise. And so I want to, number one, I want to look at, at the doctrine that is found in verses one through four. I want, to, number two, to look at the application of the doctrine to our life that is found in verses 5 through 7 and in verse 10. I think these are very specific breakdowns that we can clearly delineate. Doctrine in one, verses 1 through 4. Application in verses 5 through 7 and in verse 10. Motivation, number 3, motivation for applying these doc, this doctrine to our life is found in verses 8, 9, and 11. And then lastly, Peter's sense of urgency in verses 12 through 15. So first of all, let's look at the doctrine. It's full. It's almost more than I can comprehend in verses 1 through 4. I have to confess that many times, verses 2 through 4 especially, have just simply gone over my head. Simply gone over my head. I've known this passage for years and years and years, and I've struggled with getting my head around it. Have you ever, you, you, you see passages like that, don't you? This is so full, like, I don't, it, it's the, the, the phrases are so stacked back to back to back to back that it's hard for you to get a chron chronological understanding of what's going on in this passage. That's my testimony. But Peter addresses this epistle to those who have obtained faith of the same value with us. Now, Peter is, is obviously a Jew. And maybe he is just simply saying to these Gentile followers or Gentile believers that, listen, you guys have got the same privileges that we do. Okay? He is addressing the epistle and saying to those who, have, who are in this camp, to those who are here, who have obtained like precious faith with us. I, we're not quite sure who those are, except they are clearly those who have faith. The us may simply be the apostolic, you know, maybe the apostles and, and the Jerusalem church, or it may be the people as a Jewish um, entity. You have got the same faith that we do. And so, for Peter as a Jew, by birth and practice, the exclusive nature of his former religion is replaced. It's replaced with the allotment of faith that was given to God's elect. 
If you read in, in Titus 1, it says, Paul, an apostle according to... Let me just flip real back there real quick. You don't have to. He says this in his in- introduction. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledgement of the truth which accords with godliness. This is a faith that is given to God's elect. This is, this is who Peter's addressing. And Jude 3, we have... Uh, this, we have Jude mentioning this faith that was once delivered to the saints. It is this camp of people that Peter is addressing to those who have obtained like precious faith. And that word obtained, center column uh, is the word received, but it's the idea of an allotment. This is your allotment. This is what is given to you. You have received this allotment. This is your portion. To those who have received the allotment of precious faith. That's who he's addressing. You know, that's who Peter is saying. That's who Peter is talking to. That there is now one faith. There's now one camp. And it is the camp of faith. Is this not the basis for our fellowship here? It's obviously the, the basis of our fellowship at Believer's Chapel. Is, it's contained. We don't have enough of a... Uh, we don't have enough of organization and, and programs to unite us to anything else, do we? Think about it. We don't have a structure that unites us necessarily except the fact that we have the same faith. Praise God. This same, this like precious faith. It is one word, like precious. One Greek word. And and that, that Greek word is simply used to designate something of equal That is equal in rank or value. Equal in position or standing. It is equal in price and honor. We all share that same... It it costs the same thing for me to be saved, to be brought into the faith as it did you. I have the same benefits as you do. It is that same... It is that like precious faith. It is that of the same value. And this faith we received. To those who have obtained this kind of faith, how did we obtain it? We obtained it through the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Indeed, indeed we have. In 1 Corinthians 1.30, It says this about the Lord Jesus Christ, but of Him you are in Christ Jesus who became for us wisdom from God and and righteousness and sanctification and redemption that as it is written, He who glories, let Him glory in the Lord because in Him 
we have the land of promise. He has made to us wisdom from God. Righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. This is the Lord Jesus for us. Now listen, as we move down through this passage, it is in this place of standing, or this place or standing of faith that grace and peace may be multiplied to you. No other place are you going to have grace and peace multiplied to you. It is only in this place of faith that we get to have grace and peace multiplied to us. Not just add it, multiply. Here, when you are in this place of faith, in this standing of belief, here is where grace and peace are multiplied to you. Now we, we, we are so familiar with these terms that we become almost inoculated to the, to, to the value of grace and peace. Do you remember what it was like to come to the foot of the cross knowing that you were lost and then finding peace there? Do you remember that? May your heart be inflamed again with that feeling, that understanding, that it was in this standing of faith that God multiplied grace and peace to me. No other place is that offered anywhere except in that one place of faith. Grace and peace be multiplied to you. How? In the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith, he says. Are grace and peace yours? Is that my experience? You can, you can use these terms objectively to ask yourself whether or not you are in the faith. Because those who are in the faith, grace and peace is multiplied to them. Is your life a life of peace? Are you in a place of turmoil and anxiety? Habitually. I'm not talking about occasionally. We all have those times. Is there fear and turmoil that will not allay its Will that will, will not be laid down? Well, maybe you need to ask yourself, am I in a place of faith? It is grace and peace that is multiplied to us. God's grace, God's peace. Well, listen, these things are not ours by accident. They're not ours by accident. They are intentionally given to us by a certain means. They are... Ours, they are not multiplied to us by being ignorant of God and of Jesus our Lord. No. These truths are ours. Grace and peace multiplied to us. How? Brothers and sisters, it is in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. That's how this grace and peace is multiplied to us.
Now listen, just a, a little lesson here. Five times in our text that I read, the word knowledge is used. Three times. Three times in the text. In verses 2, 3, and verse 8. For the word knowledge is the word epignosis. The other two uses of the word knowledge is just simply the word gnosis. Gnosis. So there, Peter used two different words for the word knowledge. And without getting into the weeds too much, the first usage of the word knowledge refers to that word epignosis means to be acquainted with or to recognize something by a mark. So you, you know that this is him because he has the mark. He has this um, this identification. We, we know, we recognize. That's, the word, that's what the word epignosis means. That word knowledge that means we're intimately acquainted with it and we, we recognize someone. It's not just that you know someone. No, you know something specific about them. You, you know them. The word gnosis of 5 and 6 where it says add to your faith virtue and to virtue knowledge and to knowledge temperance. That word knowledge is just simply a knowing of facts. You just keep adding facts to your life and to your knowledge. That's the difference. The one is a recognition of a person. The other is just simply knowing more facts. You know, there's a vast difference in that. When you know facts or when you know a person and you know, okay, his likes are this way, his dislikes are this way, his personality is this way, uh, you know, he's grumpy in the morning or, you know, whatever. So there's a difference in, in the word knowledge here. The first usage of epignosis or the idea of epignosis is 17, John 17, 3. And this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. That intimate knowledge, that's the idea that is here in grace and peace be multiplied to you in this sort of knowledge of Jesus Christ. Okay. Grace and peace is multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. That's how that word knowledge is used there. So it's the difference in knowing a person or knowing facts. Now in verse 3, as we come to the heart and soul, verses 3, the heart and soul of the doctrine that is in these verses. Peter gives us an immense and profoundly significant statement in verse 3. He says, as His divine power has given to us. Just reflect on the two words, to us. Just make it personal. God's divine power has given to us here. Not 
out there somewhere. No, He has given it to us here. Everything. He has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Again, through that intimate knowledge of Him, He says, who called us by glory and virtue. That's, this, that's what was just flying in my head, you know. He has given us everything that pertains to life. If you are alive, He has given it to you by divine power. Divine power. Everything that pertains to spiritual life, to eternal life, even to physical life, to any kind of life. The only way to have life is not through some primal sludge of five billion years ago that somehow evolved into some, or some chemical process that somehow evolved into life. No, that's so ridiculous. No, life can only come from God. It's the only way it can come. It's the only way that you can have a new physical life. That there's energy. That there's energy imparted. That's why when somebody dies, they don't move anymore. Because the life has left. And so, everything that pertains to life and godliness... See, there's a... So, here's, a, here's, a, here's something for you to chew on. Are you godly because you have life? Or are you alive because you have godliness? Let me say that you are first alive. You are not alive because you're godly. No, you were dead in trespasses and sins. Remember? So you are first made alive. And then you are called to godliness. You see. Life first, then godliness. That's what this whole passage is about. To stir you up to godliness. To come, to come and act like you are alive. To come and act like you have something from God. Because that's where your life comes from. He has given us everything that pertains to this through His divine power. His energy has given us everything that pertains to life and godliness. Not part of it. Not some of it. Everything. And so that means that there's no life, there's no godliness to be found anywhere else. Anywhere else. So let's just stop looking anywhere else. You see? The application is understand where your life and your godliness comes from and then pursue that. Stop looking in the world. Stop looking at the culture. Stop looking at yourself. Stop looking at your preacher. Look to Christ. It is from God that you get life and godliness. And it is through, again, through that intimate knowledge of Him who calls you.
Now listen, <clears throat> this life stands in contrast to the corruption or the depravity of verse 4 that is in the world through lust. See, you have life in verse 3. You have corruption in verse 4. The end of verse 4. Notice that. Having escaped the corruption or the depravity that is in the world. So you have life versus corruption. And then you have godliness versus... What is the word? Lust. You see? So you first have life. And then that life, that eternal life that is ours... Moves us from our passions and lusts. It is meant to weed us, wean us from them. So that is life and godliness contrasted with corruption and decay and our passions. Verse 4. Godliness or piety stands in contrast to verse uh, to uh, to our passions or lusts of that verse 4. Now, let's, let's talk about the, latter, the last phrase of verse 3. Who called us by glory and virtue. Now, the old King James says, who called us to glory and virtue. The new King James says, who called us by glory and virtue. Now both are theologically correct. They're both correct that the call of God upon our lives is a call to glory and virtue. It is meant to bring that out in us. Right? Amen? Surely it is that. But also... The call of God comes to us by glory and virtue. By the one who called us. He called us by glory and virtue. Remember that John says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace, and truth. That is the glory of, of the Messiah. That is the glory of our Savior. We beheld His glory. And that glory, so to speak, it is, it is that glory that calls us to glory and virtue. That, that, brought, that called us out of darkness. You know, the one who called us is full of grace and virtue. It was His great goodness and mercy. To call us out of darkness. Now, to help us understand this last phrase, who called us by glory and virtue, just flip back to 1 Peter 2 in verse 9. And we have a very uh, beautiful thing here because it's the same author, by the way, obviously. So 1 Peter 2.9 says this way, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. His own special people. Do you just see how he just keeps hammering that? You are this, this, and this, and this. You see. 
That you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We well, see, that you may proclaim the praises. That word praises is the same Greek word that is virtue in our text. That you may proclaim the virtues of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. You see, it was He through the knowledge of Him who called us by glory and virtue. He, his virtue, it was virtuous of Him to save a wretched like me. Think about what a glory it is. What does, what does uh, Jesus say that if you, we need to pray for our enemies? Because even, even, the, uh, even the publicans give back to those who give to them, but it is a glory to Christ to give something that we can't return. You see, it's a virtue. It is a mark of His virtue, of His moral excellence to give of Himself to such a wretch that we can never repay it. He called us by glory and by virtue. And so, it was very helpful to just simply see 1 Peter 2.9 in light of that phrase. He called us out of darkness that we might proclaim the praises, the virtues. He chose us as a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, His own special people, four designations, of the children of God. Right there. Chosen generation, royal priesthood, a holy nation, His own special people. Well, how did they become that way? Because He called them. That's how they became that way. It's Matthew 22. Where a brother read this morning. Where those who were invited refused to come. And God came out and headed to the highways and called us in. He made a wretch, a, he made a wretched slave his son. That's what he did. The ones he invited didn't come. You see, we just don't come of our own. Do we understand that? We do not come of our own. No man comes to the Father except no man comes to me except the Father draw him. And here we see this calling. Who called us by glory and virtue. He went out into the hedges and the byways and brought us in to the wedding. And the reason the man was kicked out is because he refused to put on the robe of Christ's righteousness. And he was the one that was thrown out. And he was actually imposing his own righteousness right in front of the, of the master. That's why he was thrown out. 
Every last one of those who were in the hedges and the byways didn't have a wedding garment before they got there. He had to give it to them. What is the faith that we have? It is by the righteousness of Christ. You see? That's the wedding garment that they got when they came to the marriage. But if he was clothed in his own righteousness, he was not going to be at the wedding. Let's keep on. Verse 4, by which, now I really struggle, by which have been given to us exceeding rich, exceedingly great and precious promises. By which, what does that mean? What do the two words by and which refer to? Remember, it is the apprehension of these truths that will grow your faith. That's how we grow. It's the apprehension of these truths. It is through the knowledge of these things that we grow. Let me ask you, by which? By what? By which? By, by His knowledge? By the knowledge of Him? By His glory and virtue? What does by which refer to? By which refers to the calling. Through the calling of God, we have been given exceedingly great and gracious promises. That is where that, that is where the promises come from, is in the calling. They refer to that calling of verse 3. Peter tells us that in our calling, in our calling to faith, we were called to the land of promise. To the land of promise. 1 Corinthians 1 says, Peter, called to be an apostle. You know, we don't really have a problem with that. Peter being called to be an apostle. But sometimes we struggle with, the, with, with verse 2. To the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. You see? Just the way Paul was called to be an apostle, the Corinthian saint, uh, believers were called to be saints. Called to be saints. With all who in every place call in the name of, our, of, of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. You see, Peter tells us that we have a calling and in that calling we have exceedingly rich promises. Notice in verse uh, 1 Peter 2.9 again, uh, re reflect there again on, on the fact that we have this citizenship. And you know, those citizenship papers you received when you came into the kingdom? Yeah, those. Those citizenship papers that you got. That have you have you ever read the fine print of those papers? You see, we don't like fine print on documents, do we? No. 
No, we don't care to redefine print. We don't want to redefine print on the documents. They, they are simply the way out for the contracting party. If there's some, some means to get out, that's, that's where they will make themselves a loophole. We don't like fine print for a reason. But listen, on your citizenship papers that you got when you came into the kingdom of Jesus Christ, the fine print is full of promises. It is one promise after the next. It is one promise and another promise and another one behind that. You cannot tread in the fine print of the Bible without treading on the promises. They are full of promises. They are not loopholes to get, to get Christ off the, off the hook, to get him out. To, they are not loopholes. They are promises. That's what we're celebrating here at camp. The promises of God. The fine print contains the promises of your citizenship. Read the fine print. This is the fine print of our union with Christ. There are promises after promises, big promises, great promises, exceedingly great promises, exceedingly great and precious promises, divine assurances that God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. In Christ Jesus, all the promises of God are yes and amen. They're all contained in the person of Jesus Christ. And these promises, if you know them and believe in them, well, let me, I'm running ahead of myself. So, what do you do with promises? What do you do with a promise? Any idea? What do you do with a promise? If I made you a promise, if, I'm, if my character is trustworthy, you're going to believe it. Right? That's all you can do with a promise. You can either believe it or not believe it. That's why you need precious faith for precious promises. Amen. See, it's right here in this passage. You need precious faith to access the precious promises. And you will believe them if you know Him. God is not asking us to believe Him without knowing Him. He has given us a record of Himself. He is saying, believe me. Believe me. Believe my promises. It is. And then the, the next phrase. The, the next phrase is just. It wouldn't, it wouldn't even be right for me to say it if it weren't in the scripture. That through these promises. You can be partakers. Of the divine nature. Divine nature. Of the divine character. 
You see, you are partakers now of the divine image. But now in Christ, we can be partakers of the divine nature. You see, where the old nature was, was corrupt and full of the lusts of the flesh. But now in Christ, in the promises of Christ, in union with Christ, we can be partakers of the divine nature. That's the whole point of your salvation, brothers and sisters. Is that you might grow to be like Jesus Christ. It's the only purpose. It's, not that, it's that God be glorified as His Son becomes replicated in your life. You see, we have made the Gospel just to be so much for ourselves. It is for the glory of God. The Gospel is for God. That His divine nature would come out in us. You can go, I don't have time, but you can go and read 1 John chapter 3, verses 1-3. through 3. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God. And as children then, we, we endeavor to become like our older brother. You see, He who has this hope in Him purifies Himself even as he, as Christ is pure. It's through these promises. Your faith, active, your faith reaching out, grabbing hold of the promise. We have, we have just this huge pile of promises over here. You're standing over here. How do I get them? By that precious faith that God has given to you, believe them. But there's a means. That faith isn't just ignorant. No, you. You have to read. You have to study. You have to, you have to give yourself to them. You see? It is through the knowledge of Him that we can become partakers of the divine nature. As the knowledge of Christ in us grows, so does the life of God in us grow. And brother or sister, if you are called, you are in the land of promise. Now act like it. That's the application. We're leaving the doctrine. Go to verse 5. Now act like it, he says. Remember who you are out here in this vile world. Notice what he says. But also for this very reason, for all the glorious things that we've spoken about in verses 2 through 4, for those reasons, for all those reasons... Give all diligence. Give every measure of your energy to have this happen in you. And notice what he says. He says, add to your faith virtue. And while you are adding, he is multiplying. You see that? He used the multiplication table, but we use the adding. We use addition. We add to our faith virtue. And see, that implies that you have faith, you see. If you don't have faith, you might as well forget about adding virtue to it. Because you don't, and that's just going to be self-righteousness eventually. No, but if you have faith in Christ, now you are to give all diligence to add. And then while you're adding, he's multiplying grace and peace into your life. Glorious. Isn't that glorious? 
giving all diligence, add to your faith moral excellence. Virtue. We know what virtue means. Anything that is excellent and good, you get attention to it. Just in a nutshell, I have to move on. But that's what that means. You just simply give attention to good things, to holiness. As it says, as Paul tells Timothy, let your progress be made known to all. Let it be obvious to everyone. Giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, moral excellence. And to your virtue, more knowledge. You see, when, you, when you've added to your faith virtue, now you, you continue to, to, to educate yourself. This is the word for knowing. Just simply knowing more facts about Jesus Christ. More facts about how your life should be lived. That's what that means. You add to your faith virtue, and then to virtue you add more knowledge, and that in turn brings you back to adding more virtue, you see. See, you don't get done, but, but this... These seven traits here, Galatians 5 gives seven traits of the Holy Spirit, right? Seven fruits of the Holy Spirit. There, there are seven virtues here as well. Virtue, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, love. This ends with the encapsulating fruit of love. That's where the Galatians list starts, right? The fruit of the Spirit is love. <clears throat> well, listen, as you add to your knowledge, you begin to recognize that you need to regulate yourself. Self-control. This is in my way. I'm not going there. I'm not going there anymore. This is detrimental to me. See, self-control is for when you have options and you have choices. You say, oh, I impose my will here and say this is something that I must control myself. Self-control. When you add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, as you grow in this list, you add to your knowledge Self-control. You put aside things. Young men, old men, young sisters, older sisters. We all need to do this. But there's great danger in not exercising self-control. There are so many things beckoning for you to give attention to. Control them. You have the means. That's the shame of it. We have the means by the Spirit of God, by the Word of God, but we just don't apply ourselves. That's, we're not giving diligence to self-control. Do you know the believer is supposed to be led by the Spirit of God? Not by the ministry having a law over you. God forbid. Now, to your self-control, you have persistence or perseverance. You just keep on keeping on. You put one foot 
from the other. When you are in the right way, don't turn to the right or the left, Proverbs says. You put one foot in front of the other, and you just keep going. That's perseverance. Perseverance is for when the way is uphill. When there's difficulty, that's when you need perseverance. You see, self-control is kind of the other side. When you have abundance. Perseverance is when, he, when there's a drought. When you don't know which way you sh- When it doesn't seem clear which way you should go. You keep going. Don't stop. Winston Churchill said, when you're in hell, you keep going. Don't stop there. That's what Winston Churchill said. When you're going through hell, keep going. Perseverance. That is when life is tough. Remember, this is the application to perseverance, godliness. That's an orientation toward God. That is, this is speaking about your direction. This is the arch or the emphasis of where you're going. This is the direction you're going. This is an orientation toward God. Godliness. You know, you can, you can believe a lot of things in this life. You can believe in a lot of things. And you can add knowledge to that faith. And you can even control yourself in it. And you can even persevere in it. But it could still just be something foolish like climate change. But godliness is the orientation toward God that all these other attributes are pointed to. You see? You can, you can discipline yourself in a whole slew of, of different things. But if it's not godliness, you're spinning your wheels. To godliness, brotherly kindness. And that's what we've enjoyed here. Brotherly kindness. Blessing from brothers and sisters. Togetherness. Enjoyment of one another. Brotherly kindness. And to that brotherly kindness, now as we leave camp, we add to it love for all. That God is love, and therefore we love. It's not just extended toward the brothers anymore. Now it's pointed outward. As we leave camp, let's add love. Let's be diligent. Let's, let's remember that all of these points you have to give diligence to, to add them to that to this list. Now, quickly, goodness, that was the doctrine. Now that was the application. Quickly, I want to just point out some motivations. Point number three is motivations to apply these things five times in this text. Five times Peter says these things. He says it in verse 8, for if these things. Verse 9, he who lacks these things. Verse 10, for if you do these things, you will never stumble. Verse 12, I will always remind you of these things. And in the last sentence of the text, he says, I will be careful to ensure that you will always have a reminder of these things. Five times these things. 
We need motivation to apply these things. You see. Notice, notice number, number one in verse eight. For if these things are yours, and if they're not just yours, but they also abound, and they are abundant in your life, if they are abundant in your life, you will not be barren or unfruitful in the knowledge, and there you have it again, in the knowledge, that intimate knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. You will not be barren in that knowledge. Listen. Are you concerned about fruit bearing? Are you concerned about 10 years down the road what your life is going to be like? You should be. And do you know how that you can affect what's going to be like in 10 years? Or even next week? Or next church camp? What your life is going to be like? You know how you can pray like that? It says it right here. If you have these things and if they abound in you, your life is going to be productive and rich and it will stand for something. It will be worth having. Your life will be. Next church camp, you, you might have somebody that you, uh, you spoke the gospel to that came to faith. You will not be barren. Your life is not going to be barren. You will not be barren. In other words, there will be grace and peace being multiplied in your life, in your heart, you see. Who doesn't want this? I mean, I have, I have faced depression. Who wants to be depressed? You can avoid it. I mean, I think God may bring you through periods of, that, of those things to teach you things. But I'm talking about a habitual, you don't have to live in a habitual barrenness. For if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, you need motivation to apply these things. Verse 8. Secondly, verse 9. For he who lacks these things is what? Nearsighted. Or short-sighted. You know what that means? It means that you can't see eternal realities. That's what that means. You cannot comprehend eternal realities and how to, how to assimilate them into your life. You don't know how to do it. Because you lack the diligence to add to these things. Faith, virtue, knowledge. All of these things. Self-control. If you lack those... You will not be able to comprehend spiritual and eternal realities. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness. You know what a blind man does, right? There's an elderly lady in a store. I think it was just this past week. She had a younger person with her and the younger one just said that all that her older companion I think it might have been her mother said all that she can see are shadows that's what this is referring to things are obscure you can't see clearly you don't know which way to turn you know why because you lack these things 
See, we have no excuse, do we? Everything, remember, that has been given for life and godliness has been given to us. They've been given to us. The problem is we're not using them. That's what's going on. We are not reaching out by faith, drawing it into our basket like we buy our groceries. It's as simple as that. We are not doing it. And it's leading to blindness. It is leading to stumbling. It is, and it even leads to lack of confession. It leads to lack of testimony in our worship time. You know, it simply says that we have forgotten that we were purged of our own sins. We can't even share a testimony anymore about the fact that we were saved, that we are saved. Because we have lacked these things so badly, we can't even share a testimony anymore about what Christ means to me. Even to blindness. You see, lacking these things takes away your long-distance vision. This way, going forward, and it robs you of looking back. It does it both ways. You're in this little box. You're, you're right here. It's all about you. Because you don't have any vision. Why? Because we lack these things. We've even forgotten that we were cleansed. That's terrible. That was At one point, that was the most glorious truth that you ever owned. The fact that you're cleaned from your old sins. When you came to faith, that was the most precious thing you had. And life has robbed you of it. Or actually, our lack of diligence has robbed us of it. Because we like these things. Let me read verse 10 quickly. And I... I didn't even touch verse 10 in relation to the application. That's the point before. Verse 10 goes to the point before this one. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. See, if you apply these things, you will never stumble. And you're not making the call and election sure to God. He knows it. He knows whether you're called and elect. He knows that. The Lord knows who are His. You are proving it to yourself. This is speaking about assurance. This is speaking about being sure yourself. And also, it is helping us, the rest of you who are living around you, to know who you are. Therefore, give all diligence to make your call and election sure. Sure to you and sure to me. Not sure to God. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. What an amazing statement. Can you imagine? That's what blind people do. You stumble, right? You'll never stumble. If you make your call and election sure. And by the way, and this is another theological discussion we had. Which came first? Your call or your election? Which one did you experience first? 
Well, you definitely experienced your call first. But then you became aware that your call was because you were elect from the foundation of the world, you see. So call in our experience is first, and then election becomes ever. You see. But in God's mind, election is way first. You see. And then in time, the call is made. In time, we're called by the gospel. In time, we're called by the preaching of the word. And we respond. And then it becomes clear to us that we're elect. So you make sure that your call and election is sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. And then here is the motivation for doing that. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Wow. Now I want to point something out. I want you to remember that the word add in verse 5, the verb add is the same Greek word supplied in verse 11. Important here. Because it's saying, this text is saying that as you add these virtues to your life, so you will be added or supplied into the kingdom of God. Now that is, that is serious stuff right there. If we're to neglect our adding, you're going to enter into, into the kingdom of God, into glory. With your clothes on fire, and you're not going to have anything with you. You're going to be scarcely saved. All your works are going to be burned up because you neglected to add virtue to your faith. But let's 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 look at the positive. If you do add the same measure with fire, which you measure in your utilizing grace, as you enjoy grace, as you bring it into your life, and you live it out, that's the way you will enter into glory. The ticker tape, Macy's praying has nothing on that. The ticker tape will be flying and the drums rolling, and you will enter in with a with a conquering hero's welcome. This is not talking about salvation. This is talking about your entry in. Remember, your faith. That's settled in verse 2. Those who obtain like precious faith. But if you refuse to give attention to these things, you're going to be a beggar entering in. And we're anyway going to do that because we're unprofitable servants. We're, we're, we're to recognize ourselves as unprofitable servants. But Peter exhorts us to add to these things because it is through this adding that we will be given reward. That is the concept of reward you see. That's what this is teaching. 
that as you add virtue and all these things to your life, that there was going to be a glorious entry into it. The two are related. How you add and how you enter, they are absolutely related in this text. That is the, that is the seriousness of this passage. And now, and my last point, I'm just going to quickly go through this, and that is, Peter saw this as very important. Notice how many times he says, I'm going to make sure that you know these things. I'm going to remind you. It is, I will not be negligent, he says. I am not going to shut up. I'm going to keep reminding you of these things to stir you up. You need to be stirred up, he says. And by the way, he says, I'm going to do, you know, while I'm still in this tent, because I'm, I'm soon about to go for my house. About to leave the tent. I'm about to enter my house. Oh, yeah, but I'm going to make sure that you have a record of this even after I leave. You see how important it is? I am going to write this down for you, people. That's what he's saying in the last portion there. It is Peter's last Word as an apostle to the churches of the New Testament. Do these things, these things, these things, and these things. You see, we have kind of lowered the bar. We've lowered the bar to just faith. Just as long as I'm a believer. Just as long as I'm as I heard somebody say, just as long as I get in the door. No. Goodness, for Christ's sake. For Christ's sake. <coughs> Excuse me. His sacrifice deserves better than that. <coughs> well. Let's go forth for this exhortation. <clears throat> Let's go forth from camp. Considering these great truths. And I just, it's my heart and desire to, that we would give attention to these things in the next year. Let's come back next year less barren. More fruitful. Thank you for your kind attention.